If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And we will read the first 15 verses. No, I haven't forgotten that Jordan preached the first 13 verses, even though I wasn't here last week. But for context, we're going to read the first 15 verses. Let's read Mark 1, 1 to 15. This is the Word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After, comes me, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now... After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have heard your word read and we pray that you would help us now. Would you conform me to these words, that I would preach your word, nothing less, nothing more. And Lord, would we all be shaped by the proclamation of your gospel? Lord, we pray that we would be as the sheep of a good shepherd who listens to their good shepherd's voice. And we confess that I am not the shepherd. We are not our own shepherds, but the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what if I told you that there was somebody coming who would rule over all of us, every single person, perfectly? And by perfectly, I mean every single person would be conformed to his desires. The country that we are in would be perfectly conformed to the will of one man. Everything would be required to submit to his character. Every action that every single person would do would have to reflect the character and desires and delights of this one person. Not only would it be illegal to do things against this person's will, it wouldn't even be possible. Not only would it be impossible to do something against this person's will, you, it would be impossible to want to do something against this person's will. Does that sound like good news to you? Does that sound like the beginning of a wonderful story? 
Or does that sound like the beginning of a dystopian novel? Does that sound like the beginning of a horror story? What we're going to read, what we read already today, we're focusing on verses 14 and 15, is Mark and therefore the Lord Jesus' insistence that the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, his rule in his kingdom, is part of the gospel. This is part of the good news. This is part of what, when, it is, when the gospel is announced, this is part of what we are announcing, what the Lord is announcing. This is good news. Maybe you've heard that in order to be a Christian, Jesus must be your Lord and Savior, or your Savior and Lord. And maybe you love the part about Him being your Savior. You would really like somebody to rescue you from your enemies. You'd really like somebody to rescue you from death. You'd even maybe like somebody to rescue you from your sin. You do not like to be guilty. You do not want to go to hell. And you believe that this means that Jesus is going to now be your master. And you think about this as the, as the bad part. This is kind of like the cost. If you're looking at the pros and cons of Christianity, the pros and cons in the gospel, the pro is salvation. And the con is, and he rules over. I'm willing to, I'm willing to accept that because that's the cost a bad cost, but it's, it's worth it because I get salvation. What we see here is that Jesus does not see that. The Bible does not permit us to see that as the negative side of the announcement of the gospel. And friends, may I suggest to you that if you have that view of the gospel, that it may even be the case that you haven't believed in the actual gospel. If you think that Jesus' rule is something to merely be tolerated in order to get the goodness of forgiveness, then I'm going to suggest that your faith in the Lord Jesus will not last through temptation. It will not last through trial. And so this is a good word from the Lord, refocusing and shaping what we view to be the good news, the gospel what we would want from God to be the gospel. Our first point is this. The ministry of the Old Testament prophets is completed by Christ. We're in 14 and 15, and we see that the ministry of the Old Testament prophets is completed by Christ. Now, how do we see this? Mark is very insistent here. He wants us to notice that after John was arrested, this is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. John the Baptist. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, we already met John the Baptist earlier in Mark, right? We get more details about his life in the other Gospels. So John was essentially the last of the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets had prophesied, right before the Messiah comes, I'm going to send this guy. And John was clearly the last Old Testament prophet. Now, Jesus did do some teaching. He did do some, some uh, mighty works, some wonderful things Jesus did before John was arrested. But Mark wants us to know that John's ministry essentially had to end before Jesus was now the prophet in Israel. 
They didn't have competing ministries. John's ministry didn't just simply fade because Jesus was becoming more popular. It wasn't like these reverse charts where Jesus becomes more popular and, and John slowly finishes. No, while they shared ministry for a little while, John was very happy that people were going from him to Jesus, right? His disciples were like, aren't you a little worried that people are leaving you and going to Jesus? John's like, that's what I want. And John's ministry ended not because he went off into oblivion, because he was arrested and beheaded. You know, this makes John essentially the perfect quintessential Old Testament prophet. How many of the Old Testament prophets' ministries ended because they simply just got old and they faded off into obscurity? Almost none. The main way an Old Testament prophet's ministry ended was being killed by the people of God, in particular, by a king who thought, who, who thought of himself as a rival to God as king rather than a vice-regent or a king underneath the king of kings. Essentially, with John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophets hung up their sandals with the coming of Jesus. They hung up their pulpits with the coming of Jesus. John was the last of his kind. In John, all the other prophets hand over the baton to Jesus. We're done. Our work is done. Finish, Jesus. Finish what God began in us. The Old Testament is a bunch of books with a bunch of authors written over thousands of years. And it is very intentionally, all the authors in the Old Testament knew this, they would have seen it as an unfinished, incomplete book. They would have been very happy to receive and share their own report card with you, right? It would have been perfect. The Word of God is perfect. The Old Testament, perfect. Is it God's very Word? Check. Is it the source of life? Yes. Does it revive the soul? Yes. Does it say only what is true about God? Yes. Now, on most report cards, there's also a, a spot for C or I, complete or incomplete. Even though they would have graded the Old Testament as an A+, the word, the letter I would be appropriate, and they would be very happy to tell you, incomplete. But after John the Baptist, after Jesus' ministry, that would be completed. After Jesus, we're not looking for another John the Baptist. We're not looking for another Isaiah. We're not looking for another Jonah or Elisha or Elijah. Not looking for another Moses. What we're looking for is now a different kind of prophet, a different kind of word from the Lord. And we, we see in John chapter 1, if you read John chapter 1, go to John chapter 1 with me just very, very quickly. John chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read verses 1, and we're going to read verse 14. Okay, John 1, 1 and 14. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, uh, John 
He hands over the ministry of all the prophets who spoke the word of God. They gave the word of God. And now they hand it over to the man who is the word of God. So it's a different kind of prophet. Because now, not only is he speaking the word of God, he is the word of God. Jesus is both the prophet and the word of God. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, familiar with the Old Testament, doesn't this kind of remind you of the ministry of a priest and how Jesus fulfills that as well? We see that Jesus is also a priest. In the Old Testament, you had priests who offered sacrifices, and didn't they, on behalf of the people? There was a priest, and he offered a sacrifice. There's a priest and sacrifice. But in the New Testament, do we have a priest? We do. Christ is the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And so in the very same way that Jesus is priest and sacrifice, he's also the prophet and the word of the prophet. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, at which we... Uh, which we read this morning. The former ways, the former ways are over. The days of the Old Testament prophets are over and gladly over. Isaiah is going to be saying, I'm glad there's no more of me. And it's not that we all become Old Testament prophets now. It's true that every single Christian, in a way, can be seen as a prophet, priest, or king, or queen. But We don't become like Old Testament priests. Christ transforms that office, right? He he transforms the need for that office. So as New Testament priests, if we're all priests in that way, we serve God's temple. The priests served in the temple, caring for the temple, the, the body. And of course, the body is now living stones. And we pray for one another. As part of being priests, we pray for one another but not by making sacrifices we made, but based on the sacrifice that Christ made. And so with, as if we're New Testament prophets, we don't provide new messages, just like the New Testament priests don't provide new sacrifices, but we minister to one another with the word of Christ that was delivered during his time. We serve and minister with one another with the word of Christ that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so that means we still live as prophets in that sense. Not by giving new words, just like we don't give new sacrifices, but the word of Christ. And so when your brother or sister in the Lord is struggling with a sin, you can minister with the word of Christ. You can go to her and warn her with the word. Show her why Christ is better than that sin. Show her that she has to choose between sin and Christ and show her that Christ is so much greater. Tell her that Christ didn't just die for the forgiveness of her sins, but also for freedom from that sin. Minister with the word of Christ once for all delivered to the saints. And if one of your brothers or sisters is struggling near the point of death, suffering with sickness, Oh, you take the word of God, the finished word of God, and speak to that person of Christ. The days of the Old Testament prophets are done. Not just an endless progression of one after the other after the other. And we're always waiting for a new message, a new message, 
Oh no, with John, the Old Testament prophets hung up their sandals. They hung up their pulpits. Because Christ is the fulfillment of all they ever said. He is the fullness of God's promises. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him we utter amen to God for His, uh, to, for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you, with, with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. He is the seal on these things. We don't need any more promises. He's also fulfillment of all the commands in the Old Testament laws. All the laws, all the commands of God find their fulfillment in Christ. So I want to ask you this. Is God's word in Christ enough for you? Do you wish that, that the prophets would have had more to say than Christ? More promises? Maybe more commands? Would you prefer inside information from God on career or the stock market or the weather or the future? He says, you wish that Isaiah's ministry wasn't complete in Christ? That John the Baptist was just one more in a string of prophets? Do you wish that? Would you prefer more information in the Bible on how to have good health? Or which way to drive? Or is this enough to satisfy you? Do you agree with John? Do you agree with Isaiah that Christ is all we need? The promises in him, the comforts in him, the commands in him. Is this enough to satisfy you on your deathbed? What more can he say than to you he has said? And if, it, if you think it would be enough to satisfy you on your deathbed, it's a good thing, place to start. Let's work back. Is it enough to satisfy you on your comfy bed? Because often we think, oh no, it would be enough. The word of God would be enough to satisfy me, to comfort me on my deathbed. But dear friends, if it's not enough to satisfy you on your comfy bed, if that's not enough to satisfy your desires, what God has done in Christ, then you really have no reason to believe it will be enough to satisfy you on your deathbed. And so this is a call to agree with the Old Testament prophets. Oh, we're glad that the days of endless prophets is done and that their word is fulfilled in Christ. We can't think of anything more, anything more satisfying to living a life of joy in fulfillment and knowing God than what he has said in Christ. It takes us to our second point. The gospel of Jesus is the good news of God. The gospel of Jesus is the good news of God. Did you notice what it says that Jesus is preaching? What was he preaching? Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming what? Proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, this is interesting. Look at verse 1, chapter 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Are we now talking about two different gospels? Like there's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there's the gospel of God. This is not what he's saying at all. There is only one gospel. And what he's saying is that it is from God, and that it's also about God. That, that word from 
it means both that it is from God and also that it is about God, the word, the gospel of God. So first of all, we see that it's from God. It is the one gospel. It is God's gospel. There are lots of other gospels that you will hear, dear friends. So many people are proclaiming a gospel, and they'll catch you with it. Here's some good news for you, and you can live your whole life based on this news. But there's only one that is actually God's gospel. You're not looking for the gospel that suits you best, the one that tickles your ears the best. The one thing you need to ask yourself is, is this the gospel that comes from God? That's the only one I need. And that's the only one that will do. I need the gospel that comes from God. And if you read the rest of the book of Mark, you will see how Jesus proves and proves and proves and proves and proves that his gospel is from God. He does this by fulfilling prophecies in the Old Testament. He does this with signs and wonders so that we would know that of all the gospels, the noise of the gospels that we hear in the world, this one comes from God. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, you will be faced with many, many counterfeit gospels. And that might even mean choosing between different churches. One will offer you this one, this one, that will offer you this one. Do not be so foolish as to go for the gospel that fits best with your way of thinking. Oh, friends, find God's gospel and cling to it. God's gospel. So it's about, but it's, it's, so it's from God. That's what the word of means. It's the gospel of God. It's from him, but it's also about him. What do we mean by that we say that the gospel is also about God? That means that God is the content. Actually, it means that God is what we get with the gospel. The good news of what? The good news is that you get God. God is what's being offered. Now, it's not that you are avoiding God and now you actually get him. No, no, God is, you will always have a relationship with God. The question is, what is the quality of that relationship? And I don't mean good, better, best. I mean, you are either God's child, and the Bible says this, you are either God's child or you are his enemy. And the gospel is that you get God as Father. When you think about the gospel, do you merely think about the forgiveness of your sins, freed and rescued from hell? Is it just about forgiveness? It's actually not. Forgiveness is a means to an end. Forgiveness is necessary, but the end is God. Eternal life is wonderful and necessary for the gospel. But what is that eternal life? Eternal life with who? The gospel is that you get God. If you have no interest in God, but you have interest in heaven, and you've gone to Jesus because you want the forgiveness of your sins so you can go to heaven, but you're not wanting God, you believed in a false gospel. It's not the real gospel. The real gospel is that you get God and Christ pays for that. Christ accomplishes that you get God. It is the good news of what Christ has done. 
This is news. It is good news. Now, kids, I want to ask you a question. If you have homework, if you have homework and you're maybe sitting at the table and you're doing some homework, and let's say it's math, you've got some math homework, and you're doing your math assignments and you're doing your, doing your work, you've got your homework down and you're doing some work, how silly would it be if your parents said to you, uh, have you finished your news yet? It's not news, it's homework. Dear friends, we need to understand that the gospel is news. The gospel is news about what somebody else has done. Christ has accomplished the gospel instead of us. The law of God is good. And we'll see Jesus fulfilling law in the lot in the gospel as we read it. The law is good, but it will not save you. The law is not news. The news is what Christ has done instead of us. And so as we read the book of Mark, you are forbidden from taking this as a way to be saved. The gospel of Mark, if you're reading the gospel of Mark, is not an instruction manual on how to be saved. It is an instruction manual on how to be a savior. It is the good news. You're watching somebody else save the church. And so don't confuse the gospel of Mark with how can I act in order to get saved? Some of that's going to be there. But primarily what you're seeing is someone else save you. You're watching, what does it look like to be a Messiah? And I have some good news for all of you. None of you are called to be the Messiah, but you are called to believe in the Messiah. It is news of a battle that has been won instead of you. Let's continue to our third point. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of all God had ever done before. We'll read in verse 15. He is saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. All that God has done before is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, there is a long time since God created the world to when Jesus came, isn't there? Many, many years, thousands and thousands of years. But there's also a lot of time between Abraham and Jesus, right? There's a long time between David and Jesus, of Jonah and Jesus, and Adam and Jesus. All these, there's so much time. And when he says the time is fulfilled, it's not like he had a, a, a amount of years on a clock and he's like, well, now I'm gonna do it. No, God was very busy during that time, wasn't he? He was doing a lot of things. It wasn't empty time. What was he doing? God was preparing his people for Christ. He was preparing his people for the coming of Christ. One of the things that we see in the Old Testament is he's essentially creating a lot of big shoes for Jesus to fill. He's creating a lot of big shoes for Jesus to fill. The first big set of shoes that he creates is the idea of the federal head, the head of all creation. The first one was Adam. And that means that whatever Adam did would have incredible consequences for everybody under his headship, everyone who's part of his reign. And Adam failed pretty miserably, didn't he? And so God is setting us up to know we need a federal head. We need a representative better than Adam. 
But he wanted us to know that before Jesus came so we would know how wonderful it is that Jesus did it. He wanted the world to live in the, in, in the, the damage that was done by a terrible head so we would know the sweetness. We would not take for granted how wonderful it is to have a perfect head. He gave his people sons of promise. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. And these were sons promised that God made promises through. But they ultimately, even though they were good gifts, they failed. Leaders of God's people who sometimes were good, sometimes were bad, but ultimately were always left wanting more. God gave the law. He gave his law very, very clearly to his people in the Old Testament and said, I will protect you while you're keeping this law. This law will actually not make you vulnerable. And we think, well, of course, then they're going to fulfill that. They're going to obey it because God can protect them while they do it. And they failed. You have kings of God's people, and when they reigned well, the people did well. And when they reigned poorly, the people did poorly. And so now we have the shoes of a king Huge shoes. Oh, that we would have a perfect king. And all of these were a string of tastes of blessings from the Lord, but yet longing for more. Those gifts that God would have given in part to his people, they're longing for that to come in fullness. The fullness of time has come. This is the last thing. There's no more redeemers There's no more redemptions. All of those wonderful acts of God that he had done in the Old Testament, they're all to be thankful, we're to be thankful for them. But they just point to how much greater Christ has done. If all we had, dear friends, was the the Old Testament, if all we had was the law, if all that people had was David's kingdom and, and, and David's sons just kept reigning very much like David with sin, but not but not perfectly. The Gospel of Mark tells us, Jesus tells us, that the purpose of creation would not have been yet completed. It was not complete until the Lord Jesus had come. Anything that we can accomplish, the amount of good things that we can do, all the things that we can enjoy, if we do not have Christ, then our life would have been a waste. Christ is the fulfillment of all that God has ever done. Our fourth point is this. The gospel is God taking matters into his own royal hands. He's saying in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the domain of a king? The place where a king reigns. What's that called? It's a kingdom. And the proper relationship between a king and his kingdom is one where they obey. One where they serve him. One that he reigns over and he rules over. A place, a kingdom is supposed to be a place that is shaped by the king's wisdom, shaped by the king's character. It's defended by his power. He's exercising his authority. And dear friends, this is the proper relationship between everything and God. Everything must see God as their king. That's the proper relationship of creation to God, that we see God as king. 
And yet God has chosen to reign through a man. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, but also to rule it and subdue it. Humans were meant to rule over the world as under kings or vice regents is the, is the technical term, under God. That we are to rule under God's ruling. And this Adam was the first one and Adam failed. Adam rebelled. And we have all rebelled against God since that time. And God had, ev- was, had every right to just wipe out this place of rebellion, to just, just destroy all the rebels, because he's right to insist that, we ch- that this is his kingdom. And God created the nation of Israel, and he set it up as a kingdom. It was supposed to be a place where God ruled and where only his character was shown and enjoyed. And he put kings over them to accomplish that. And some were good. Most were bad. But by and large, God's character did not reign in that land. It didn't accomplish those things that a king is supposed to accomplish. A king is supposed to reign in righteousness. He's supposed to make sure everything is righteous in his kingdom. And those kings themselves were sinful. And so we're waiting for a perfect king. And so we see it's the kingdom of God. And so God himself comes and says, I will reign. But he takes on human flesh in order to do that. God becomes a man to be a a human ruler. And so God sent his own son to take matters in his own hands. How is Jesus, how does he exercise his kingship? He leads in righteousness. He insists on righteousness. Jesus doesn't just suggest righteousness. He insists on it. He insists on it. He, in fact, actually gives us his righteousness. His record of obeying God, his 33 years of living as a human, that record is given to anybody who believes in Jesus. And so you are declared righteous. And he takes your sin and he takes the justice and curse for your sin on the cross. Not only that, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God now transforms us so that we would live righteously. The Spirit of God leads Christians into righteousness. The most miserable person in the world is a Christian who will not obey God. Because of the Spirit that God has given to work that in them, to discipline them internally so that they will obey Christ, to give them a desire for obedience to Christ. Christ is the perfect king, and he rules where Adam has failed, where David failed, and where we all fail. He leads perfectly. And one day, he will return to judge the living and the dead. And this whole world will be a a place of perfect righteousness where only righteousness is permitted, where everything will reflect God's character perfectly, where it will not be possible to do something outside of the character of God, and it will not even be possible to want to do something outside the character of God. 
Dear friends, I wonder if we long for that. Do you ever sit and think about how wonderful it will be in the new heavens and earth? I think a lot of us do. We think about the fact that there'll be no more pain. There'll be no more people hurting us. No more fear of poverty. No more fear of sickness. No more fear of death. No more fear of natural disasters. No more fear of of pandemics. But is one of the things that we sit and ponder how wonderful it will be that it will only be perfectly righteous. You think about that? Can you imagine living in a place that everything perfectly reflects God's character? That everything glorifies God perfectly? Every heart loves God and wants to do what God pleases. Everything is an act of worship, whether you're making a shoe or playing a song or building a road out of gold, I guess. Everything is an act of worship. Everything is righteous. Do you sit and think about how wonderful it will be to be in a place without sin? Not just that people won't sin against you. I'm pretty sure you think about that often. Wouldn't it be great if nobody sinned against me? But you ever thought about how wonderful it will be to be in a kingdom where you don't sin? Where all you do, the only thing you do is always praising God. Doesn't mean you'll only be singing. But every activity would be one where you're delighting and enjoying and serving God in righteousness. Oh, to be in a kingdom that is perfectly the kingdom of God. Righteousness and only righteousness. Only God is treated as God. If all you can think about when you think about eternal life is that there will be no sickness or pain. That might be an indication that you believed not the gospel of God, but a false one. Oh, it is true there will be no more sickness and there will be no pain. Because that is the punishment for sin and sin will not exist. But long, dear friends, long for the righteous kingdom where Christ is king. Not that we are all independent but that we are completely serving God and enjoying that perfectly. Last point is this. Flee from the kingdom which is being destroyed by Christ's kingdom. We see that in the last bit here. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. There is a kingdom where only righteousness dwells, and that is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus where only righteousness is permitted and no sin is permitted. That should make you think. Wait, if if no sin is permitted in that kingdom and no sinners are permitted in that kingdom, I'm a sinner. How how am I going to get into that kingdom? The good news so, so far sounds good for perfect people, but I'm not a perfect person. How do I flee from the kingdom of the world and flee into the kingdom of Christ? How do I get out? I know that Christ is coming to destroy the kingdom of the world. I know that he's coming to put an end to rebellion and make everything perfectly obedient and to banish sin and sinners out of the kingdom. I know that's true. I know he's coming. Just like Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. I know he's coming. How do I get out? Now, dear friends, you may not have heard it, but it's becoming more popular. There is a false teaching called the gospel of the kingdom. 
Now, like any false teaching, it's actually hard to recognize at first because that phrase, the gospel, the kingdom, is in the Bible. But what people mean when they talk about the gospel, the kingdom, often in, in our day now, is that they believe that Jesus preached a different gospel than Paul. Jesus preached a different gospel than Paul. Paul preached the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and that you're saved by faith in him, that you're saved by what he did. But Jesus preached you're saved by being part of that kingdom and acting as if God is your king. Dear friends, that is a wicked, wicked, wicked false teaching. You are not saved by acting like God is your king. If you think that you are saved by acting like God is your king, if you think that's how God will judge you, whether you get into heaven or not, then you can be sure that you will not get into heaven. Because if Jesus reigned over a kingdom where, that was only for, of people who only obeyed him properly, how many citizens, how many human citizens would be in that kingdom? One, the Lord Jesus himself. So he tells us to repent, which is to flee from the kingdom of the world. And how do we get out? Repent and believe. Believe in the gospel, dear friends. It is not enough to simply want to be forgiven. But you want to remain kind of independent from God. I want to be able to do what I want. I don't want God to punish me, but I want to sort of live as my own king. I kind of like this idea that God isn't reigning over me. That's not salvation. But neither is salvation saying, I need to run, I need to become a good person so that I'm part of his kingdom. That's also a false gospel. Dear friends, if you think that you are part of God's kingdom by obeying him, you will go to hell. But if you think you only want to be forgiven but not part of his kingdom, you will also go to hell. Dear friends, the gospel is what Jesus did to take sinners and bring them into God's kingdom as citizens. And you enter that kingdom, what does it say? By believing. By believing that God is the king of the universe and that you have rebelled against him. By believing that it is wicked to rebel against him and that the universe should be the kingdom of God and that you are guilty but that God so loved you that he sent his son to take matters into his own hands, to save a guilty people, to die for their sins, to defeat death by rising from the dead, and to lead them in righteousness, to give them his record of righteousness, to give, him, give them his qualifications for the kingdom. You need perfect qualifications to get into the kingdom of heaven, which is great because you receive Christ's by faith. This is a lovely passage for pointing out false gospels. And it is a gift to us 
so that if we are believing in a false gospel, maybe the false gospel of forgiveness only, but not actually loving the reign of God, or the other false gospel, which is you love the reign of God and you think that you're good enough to do it. Both of those are incomplete and therefore false gospels. Jesus is the king. Is that good news for you? Do you love that Jesus is the king? That he will insist that all the world, including you, is righteous and lives as God's glad subjects. When you hear the gospel, do you love not only that it gives you forgiveness, but that it gives you God? Do you see the corruption of the world? Do you see the nonsense going on in our culture? Do you see that and see how terrible it is? It's a world in rebellion. But you just stop there and just think about how terrible the world is and how much better you are. Or do you flee to Christ and say, that would be exactly where I would be. But I am fleeing to Christ by faith in the gospel. Dear friends, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That means it is the next thing. We're not waiting for another prophet to warn us before the end. This is the next thing. There is no prophet coming to warn us. This is the next thing. Christ has come and he will come again to bring the kingdom of righteousness. So repent. Oh, but believe in the gospel. Trust in Christ to reconcile you to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that that you intend to rule over all things perfectly and to have no unrighteousness. We rejoice that you intend to have a universe where everything is perfectly submitted to you and only obeys you and only honors you. But we realize that that would disqualify us. And so we are grateful that you sent Christ not only to reign over that kingdom, but also to purchase our salvation for us. Father, in those times when we are facing temptation and we think actually sin would be better, that we think the kingdom of the world would actually be better, Lord, show us Take the scales off of our eyes to see how much greater it is to live with Christ as our king. To see him not only as a necessary king, but a good king. Lord, we pray that you would lead us in righteousness. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are not yet citizens of your kingdom. Convict them of their sin. Work in them a desire to flee from the enemy kingdom. But Lord, also work in them a faith in Christ that he is the way into your kingdom. That his blood paid for their sins. We pray, Lord, that you would reign in us. We pray that more and more and more this church would reflect your character And that we would love to be corrected 
and led in righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.